0: How's it, guys? You're listening to sasurfski.com. We're all about surfski, we're all about paddling, and your host, Robin Tyndall is coming in hot straight out of Cape Town. Hey guys, welcome back to SA Surf Ski. First of all, an apology. It's been a hang of a long time since we last did one of these podcasts. Life just has a habit of getting in the way and I've been doing some things like organizing some surf ski races and doing a bit of paddling and before you know it, months and months have gone past. So uh, we've got a real treat today as a way of making it up for being absent for so long. I've uh, managed to pin down... Jasper Mocker. Jasper's with us at the moment and we're going to be having a chat with him. I think we're in for a real cheat. And uh, Jasper, welcome to uh, SA uh podcast. I think this is podcast number four, if I'm not mistaken. How are you doing?
1: Hey, Robin. Thanks, man. Yeah, I'm thrilled to uh, be on the podcast and thanks to all the listeners for uh, tuning in. Uh, yeah, I'm stoked to to be on board and um, have a chat about something, Surfsky.
0: So, for those of you who don't know Jasper, and I'm pretty sure if, you, if you're if you anywhere in the paddling world, associated with the paddling world, you definitely know the mocker name, you know the mocker brand, uh, and you probably know who Jasper is. But just in case you don't, let me just run through this man's CV. It's pretty impressive. So he's won the Perth Doctor three times. Uh, he it was the World Surfski Series uh, champion, that's world champion uh, for Serfski in 2014. Uh, the World Marathon champ, so that's Flatwater Canoe Racing. He was World Marathon Champ in K2 in 2014, 2016, and 2017. And uh, those were gold medals. Uh, in 2015 and 2012, he got a, a silver and a bronze, respectively. And uh, in 2018, he uh, managed a very hard-fought and close uh, close bronze medal in the K1s of the World Marathon Champs as well. And uh, to top it all off, he's also a three-times SA Single Surf Ski Champ. And very recently, um, I asked him for his CV, and he didn't include this, but literally a couple of days ago, he uh, won the uh, Hansa Fish River Canoe Marathon with Stu McLaren in the K2 with a semi-sprint finish up against some pretty amazing paddlers. So um, Jasper comes with with a pedigree that's hard to beat. So we'll be unpacking some of that today. Uh, Jasper, let's maybe kick off with what is right at the top of my mind right now. And how is that fish title for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of cool to start with the, with the freshest thing first. Hey? Um, it, was, it was really fun. Uh, you know, I think the fish has been, obviously, it's, a, it's such an iconic race on the South African calendar. Um, you know, there's a reason they've made it the South African Championships every year. And it alternates between K1 and K2, and it's always a South African title race. So that tells you just about everything you need to know about the fish, the consistency, the competition. Um, and just generally the good time that you have up there. So, you know, that kind of lays the platform for a world-class race. Um, and uh, Stuart and I got, we actually just spoke about it a couple of weeks ago. We were preparing for World Surfskij Champs in France. And just before that, I think, you know, he hadn't had a partner. I wasn't sure if I was going to go. And he said, hey, listen, are keen to head up there? And I said, yeah, you know, I am keen. But the main thing is, is that we're going to go race with no pressure and have fun. Obviously, we'll, we'll have a strategy and we'll be calculated. But... The main thing is we're going to race light-hearted, you know, and I think sometimes in a river race, that's what you need. You need to be kind of be relaxed and you need to to play it as it lies. um, If you want to put it that way. And that's exactly what we did. Um, You know, we took our chances when we got them, even though our our final chance came quite close to the end, unnervingly. (laughs) We left it quite late, but the door did open and we took our chance and we managed to get a win. So, um, and we really had a good time doing it. So that, you know, if I'm going to, if I'm going to win a race, that's that's the way I want to win it. It was lots of fun.
0: So you and Stu, uh, by the way, that's Stu McLaren we're speaking about, uh, a, a Durban-born and raised guy or Maritzburg born and raised guy now who uh, is uh, down here in Cape Town and pretty instrumental in, uh, in shaping uh, uh, the Western Cape paddling. Uh, and Stu's a phenomenal paddler. Is this the first time you and Stu have teamed up for a race of, of this level? Uh,
1: no, it's not the first time. We've actually won the up together. Um, and we did a couple of pre-races and then we've done time trial or two together in the K2. You know, I think we've had, we've been quite fortunate. We've had a very nice squad of guys down here um, in Cape Town on the um, most them from the Flay training with Peter Cole at uh, the ORCA training squad. And, um, you know, we've rotated nicely within the group. We've uh, I've paddled with Nick, paddled with Kenny and paddled with Stu. And, and we actually all paddle quite well together. So, um, so we know each other very well. And then, you know, we've paddled together a few times. So it was, it was fairly natural for us to just hop into the boat.
0: So I want to come back to talking about fish. I'm not done with that yet, and we've got a couple of questions from the community. But I've got an interesting question. I have paddled with Stu once, and uh, those those who know the story will be laughing right now, and I don't think I've ever been so shattered and destroyed in all my life. I definitely uh, ran out of talent quite fast. But my question for you, Jasper, is when you're trying to choose a partner, do you look at something like cadence? Stu's got a pretty fast cadence. I've got a slow cadence. That was one of the reasons, one of many reasons why we didn't work well together. But is that something you consider that, 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 you know, you guys naturally just have a rhythm that makes sense? Uh,
1: maybe not too much. I think once you get into the elite level, all guys need to have that ability to, to paddle with a high cadence. Um, so that kind of goes with the territory. I think there may be in certain cases um, some paddlers who uh, are, not, are not suited to you at all. Um, but I think generally most of the guys should be able to adapt. Um, and I think with myself being in the back, uh, I've spent a lot of time in the back of the boat, so I've become quite comfortable with having to adapt to what the front guy is doing. Um, and I think if the back guy is able to do that, then um, then it's less of an issue. You know, if, if you've got someone in the back who doesn't have the ability to alter his cadence, that's a problem. But um, for myself, being in the back, I'm, I'm uh, comfortable enough to be able to adapt to whatever the front guy is doing.
0: So speaking about cadence, if we can just kind of get technical on, on training and approaches to paddling, um you know you just just observing you and you you're you're paddling you know i've noted you you do you do spin quite fast um obviously that works for you um but you know there's there's some very powerful paddlers out there who do really well with the slower cadence um do you find do you think as an elite paddler it's more beneficial to be someone who can turn the blades over faster as opposed to a to a slower grind is there a preference or is it just horses for courses
1: no look there's there's benefit to both and and i mean you've you know, you've got to take your approach. So you've got to decide what you're going to do. And um, I'd say for, I'd say there they, are very few paddlers who can paddle with a very long, slow cadence and be successful. And it also has a lot to do with body type. So someone that immediately comes to mind is Clint Robinson. And, um, you know, big, powerful guy. Spent most of his, or the early part of his career, sprint kayaking. So got comfortable with, with paddling with massive blades and, you know, very rigid shafts quite early on. So he's comfortable paddling with, with that equipment which allows him to be competitive uh, with a slow cadence, uh, which is not that common. I'd say if you look at the other, spe- the other side of the spectrum is guys like me, and then another guy that comes to mind is uh, Jeremy Cotter, who famously used to paddle with, or still does paddle with, very short paddles um, and extremely high cadence. So, um, and, you know, I think the biggest limiting factor, I've been coaching more and more guys lately, and I'm talking about guys that are upper 40s maybe 50s into their 60s and the biggest limiting factor i see of those guys with being able to progress the paddling and get into runs and, and catch runs and stay on the runs is the ability to lift their cadence so i'd say for most people out there um it's, it's a key skill for them or a key training because at the end of the day it's you know it's, it's training and you've got to be comfortable but you also just got to train and be fit to be able to raise your cadence so if you're able to do that i think you're able to take your paddling and you know to to the next level Um but instead that you know there are certain people who are of different styles so if you look at cycling you know you have guys like Jan Ulrich who used to cycle with her in a very high gear and very you know very slow cadence but then you have guys like Chris Froome and Lance Armstrong well okay well let's open the Lance Armstrong chapter now but they you know, used to cycle with, with very high cadence so I think um, you know you've got to find your style and then you've got to work according to your strengths.
0: So you mentioned the older guys, and uh, the name that comes to mind of the older guys who still perform is, is Oscar. And uh, the only reason I mention Oscar is, um, is, is I've, I've listened to you talk and I've watched you talk about the Miller's Run, one of the most famous downwind runs around. And by the way, I didn't mention it at the, at the beginning, but uh, Jasper holds the record for the fastest Miller's Run ever. Uh, Jasper, what was your average speed for that, uh, for that run? uh every speed for that run was 19.2 19.3 now, if anyone who's done a Miller's, and many of us who are listening who have done it, will know that Miller's is not a big um, ground swell place. It's a windswell. So the swells aren't moving super fast. So that kind of speed is pretty frightening. Um, if you've done a Miller's, you'll realize that that's quite mind-boggling. But uh, yeah, so Jasper holds that record at the moment. It's quite amazing that he holds it because there's a lot of top, top, top paddlers who've been knocking on that door for a long time. And uh, so it's, it's not exactly a, a record in a vacuum. So nicely done there, Jasper. But what I'm talking about here when I mention Oscar and, uh, and the cadence and so forth is in my mind um oscar represents a a style of downwind paddling that's kind of wait for the ocean there's always a run behind you um you know stop paddling early paddles down etc etc um when i've heard you speak about millers in particular but generally downwind it seems that you've got a far more aggressive attacking approach to to going downwind um how do you which is better? Is one better? How do you how do you kind of balance the two approaches against one another? And what would you advise kind of us average average Joes on, in terms of a downwind paddling style?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think if 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 we had to sit down, the three of us and Oscars at the table, we'd probably have a lot more in common um, than uh, being um, having different approaches. A lot of it has to do with with where we grew up and where we learned our downwind paddling. So, on the Miller's Run. We, we do have a fair amount of ground soil that wraps around Cape and comes into the bay. But the thing is it's it's quite messy. So um the the lines don't they're not clean, they don't line up. So to get yourself through those little wedges and, and link runs you've gotta you've gotta have a bit of a uh, like a, a semi automatic rifle approach. You've gotta be able to, to rip it for a few strokes and get over the crest onto the next one and then rip it again. So it's it's a you know it's a constant um constant routine of sprint, relax, sprint, relax, which does come across fairly aggressive and fairly high cadence. Whereas if you go up to Natal, especially on a Southwest, you know, you've, you've really got those big ground swales coming through, and then you've got the, the, the Southwest, the wind swale that's, that's blowing at an angle to that. So it's, it's quite clear which run you're on. You know, you can catch a wind chop to the right, and then you turn left, and you can get onto a big ground swale and then ride that for ages. So i think the conditions itself is is really what determines the type of style um that you're going to have and if you're going to be a successful downwind racing paddler you need to adapt your style slightly and i think as a result of that just the way we talk and teach um has a lot to do with the conditions that we refer to when we're speaking but you know i think if i had to look at all the different places and all the different downwind conditions what if i was to teach people at that venue on that run I'd probably have to adapt what I was teaching a little bit. And um, so, yeah, you know, I think, uh, but in terms of having the ability to, to lift your cans, get onto the runs, you've got to do, be able to do that. So you've got to be able to paddle aggressively to get yourself onto the runs. But certainly, there's an element of flow and surfing and a smoothness um, that, you need to, that you need to practice to keep yourself efficiently on the runs.
0: Yeah, it sounds like the secret to being a good downwind paddler is being able to adapt and just find the flow for whatever the ocean is doing on that day. But seeing as we're talking about um, downwind techniques, and we're going to circle back to the fish. I've still got some questions out there. So if you're listening and you're curious about some of the fish river uh, stories that went down, we're going we're to circle back to those. But while we're talking about downwind paddling, I have to say I've, I've come across um, the video series that uh, David, uh, Jasper's older brother and Jasper have put together on uh, just general being general surf ski paddling and in particular there's a second video series on downwind paddling by the way guys i think for $20 you can get lifetime access to this thing um it is absolutely amazing. There's helicopter footage, there's downwind footage. Just the visuals alone are amazing, never mind the uh, the level of advice that you get with it. So, you know, for for pretty much no money, you can unlock some of the, for my mind, some of the best advice and the best training videos I've seen um, on the net at the moment. But Jasper, talk us through that. As someone, myself, I make a fair amount of videos and so forth. Putting that one-on-one video series together looked absolutely amazing it looked like it looked like a hang of a lot of work um you know how did you guys go about pulling that off how did it was it, it really yeah. is substantial really guys go out and check it yeah. out yeah no look it was an enormous amount of
1: work and uh, so I'm, I'm, uh, we've been getting some great feedback so it, it, it was definitely worth it yeah look the guys from 101learn.online approached us and um, it's a startup company in cape town and they uh, wanted to get some courses out there and they approached us for a SIRS-T course. Um, and, then, you know, that's where the process started. And then we eventually got down to what we, what we released, which was the Masters of Surf and the Downwind Pro. Um, two different courses um, over 70 videos of content. Two to three minutes, four minutes. Very easy to watch and lots of fun. Um, and some great um, cinematography um, world-class editing. So it was an enormous amount of work, but I think the main thing for us was um, to present all of our knowledge in an organized way. Uh, I think that You'll go out there and you'll, you'll pick up a video here and a sort of a messy Facebook video there and a, and a YouTube thing here. And you might pick up a little nugget here and there. But really, there was, there was no platform that presented all of that knowledge in an organized, sequential way, which is what we were after. Obviously, also, obviously, having great footage because um, it's just fun to watch something that's, that's really well well uh, edited. So um, that's what we were after. Um, and I think we really... Even though there's probably a lot more that we could add and we still will add it, we will always be updating the courses and, and adding more content. Um, we could probably get into more detail because there's always more to teach. Um, but I think it's a great way to start to just get people going uh, with some good content. Um, you know, we, I think we ended at the Masters of Surfski is really an A to Z of surfski paddling. Um, so someone can literally walk into a shop, buy a surfski and a paddle, buy a video course, and, and they'll be pretty good to go. And then the, down paddling, the, the downwind pro answers a lot of questions that, it, that people may have about downwind paddling.
0: Yeah, no, I'm, I've been blown away by it. I've, I've learned a huge amount. I think no matter who you are in the paddling world, you've got something to learn. So check it out. Where, where, where can the guys pick up a, a copy of this again?
1: Uh, www.101learn.online and then forward slash surfski. But once you go onto the 101learn.online website, then uh, you'll just see the tab for surski.
0: Uh, excellent, guys. Yeah, go check that out. Uh, uh, Jasper, I've been saying let's circle back to fish. A couple of questions around there. And uh, we've got uh, Dave Harker, uh, Billy's older brother. And uh, Dave's actually putting together a great race at the moment in, in Durban, the uh, the back Series, which has been running for ages uh, on a Friday night up in Durban. But Dave wants to know, and I think a lot of us want to know, uh, on, on the fish, the famous credock are you and Stu went over, I think, in second place behind uh, Hank and Wayne. What happened between Craddock, where you were a second behind, and the finish, where you were a couple of seconds ahead? <laughs> yeah,
1: obviously not very common for someone to go over Craddock second. Um, and um, Craddock Weir second and win the race. Um, so we, we had planned, we wanted to shoot Craddock Weir first. Um, we'd spoken about that, but coming into the weir, Hank and Wayne had taken up the pool a long way before that. I mean, they'd taken up the pool basically from gauging weir and through Marlow Causeway over Marlow chute. So that's about seven or eight k's, which is a long way out to try and control the race. Um, and I, I mean, I knew that Hank would want to be at the front because that's definitely the, uh, an, an advantage. Uh, but they were very brave that they, that they um, went from very far out. So I think... What we were able to do is we really were able to recover. And, and, but the door just never opened. He was going to give it a go before the wear. But I think because they were maintaining quite a high pace, we just ran out of water. We just weren't going to get past them. So we, you know, really didn't have didn't have any other option. I think that was a the theme of ours is not to force anything in the race. So we ended up going over Craddock's second. We managed to... And then with about a... K and a half to go, two k's to go. that There's a little rapid in the center of the river. And the clean line is generally to go right of that, um, of that wave train. But on the left, there's a little tongue of water right against the reeds. And as we were approaching that rapid, uh, Hank and Wayne followed the natural flow, which was to go right, and it just opened the door for us on the left. And I just realized, I just thought before that, I thought, we need a moment to, we just need a moment. We need an open door to get past. And as soon as Stu started moving the boat left, I um, just gave a little, you know, gave a bit of extra power from the back and I said to him, Stu, this is our moment. And he was all over it. He, he lifted the cadence, put the power down and we pulled level with them. And as soon as we pulled level with them, um, you know, we needed another 15 or 20 strokes and we just got our nose past. Um, and, and as all river racers will know, if, you, if you're in front in moving water, it's really, it's, it's very hard for someone to come past. So the tricky one was just navigating through that S-bend um, and we managed to stay in front of them through there. And then from there was just, you know, it's just 800 meters, one kilometer to the finish, just flat boxing. So just two boats time trial against each other and we held on. So um, yeah, that's what happened.
0: All right, so yeah. so you know, two days of racing, obstacles all over the place, and uh, yeah, it came down to not quite a sprint finish. It was, but uh, it wasn't what we've seen in the past, where it's half a boat length in between. You guys were clear ahead, but a question I have, um, as a surf ski paddler who tries to dabble in the river every now and again, you know, when when I'm coming up to an obstacle, particularly a, a significant obstacle, but even small ones, I want clear space in front of me, clear space behind me, so I've got room to react and do all of that. You guys are racing on the river flat out, boats overlap, paddles clanging all over the place. Yet you finish with boats that have hardly got a scratch on them. You guys don't take a swim. How is how how do you manage such close quarter combat for so long without incident?
1: Yeah, I think how the how the different boats approach and, and the the mood on the water can have a lot to do with how the race unfolds. In this case, there was a there was a a good general respect between the two boats and, and also the third boat with Simon and Kenny when they were there up until were And I think everyone knows that if there's going to be argy-bargy and people are going to be racing into obstacles, it's just going to get messy for everyone. So I think if you're able between the crews to, to just establish a, a sort of a paddling relationship, as it were, you know, it sounds funny, but just to kind of just, there's, there's a lot of value to just having some etiquette on the water you know and, and generally what that means is the guy that's pulling if you're coming up to an obstacle the guy that's pulling will go through that obstacle first everyone everyone will give him enough space you know it's up to that guy to decide how much space he wants to give them but generally it means dropping onto the tail of the wheel or something like that just give around enough space you go over the obstacle that guy gets the right to go over the obstacle first and then as the wheel turns um, it'll be the next guy's turn to pull and whatever obstacles come up you know he'll be able to go through that first in saying that, though, and um, there have been times in South African river racing where there hasn't been that uh, reciprocal respect between crews and things get nasty, um, which then uh, doesn't end up that well. So, you know, if you're able to, to just keep that etiquette and, and realize the guy that's done the work gets the right to, sh- to go through the obstacle first, then things generally work out okay if that guy shoots it right. But, uh, you know, when, there's, when the skills aren't there, when there's a bit of lacking in how to shoot it or where to approach the skills, that's when things start getting messy, especially when, you get five to ten boats coming up to an obstacle, which is sometimes what happens in some of these races.
0: Um, you know the major obstacles like Keith's and the and the big weirs and that on 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 fish. Um, the slightly lesser obstacles are they opportunities to attack or do you kind of say, listen, let's get through this clean, stay upright because uh, a swim's going to be too expensive. Well, are you looking for, a, for an opportunity to, you know, jump on someone who's a bit tentative through a rapid and get past? Uh, I, I'm talking about, you know, the, those second-tier obstacles that are still yeah. major. Um, yeah. but just one step down from survival.
1: Yeah, so look, what my, what I, my answer before this is probably like all matey-matey and stuff. No, well, let me tell you, the flip side of that is that you're looking for any opportunity to exploit the guys. So you're just trying to do it fairly. So what that looks like is basically if you do go into rapid, first and that's exactly what you're saying like the lesser rappers the rappers that wouldn't have a name but are still pretty tricky there are two things that you can do firstly you can i mean if you're really feeling strong and you can see someone's batting to stay with you as it is you can try and make a break and generally that happens through the middle and towards the end of the rapid when the boat speeds up and sometimes guys are a bit unstable so you can you can try and get away immediately portages are also a really good time to try and get away especially when guys make errors but I think generally what you want to try and do is if you can pull through the rapids more often than not, at the bottom end of a rapid, you could always up the ante a bit and so you can pick the pace up because as you go into the rapid, generally you get a gap of about 5, 10 meters and you can use that 5, 10 meters and once someone is forced to, to make up those 5, 10 meters 10, 20 times in a row, that starts to tell towards the end of a race, which is especially true for the fish. First day, 48 kilometers um, and you know, what a lot of the top guys will tell you is really that the race starts at Cutcoop. So before Cutcoop, where, you know, through Keith, punts, all of that, guys are are having a look. They're just stretching each other. And then the guys that have been the most efficient, that have been able to be in front most of the way, generally are feeling stronger towards the end of the day. And that's when the gaps really start to open up. All
0: right. All right, fascinating. And I think I need to remind myself that this is a surf ski podcast. And I think uh, we've been speaking about rivers. It's topical right now. As uh, so a lot of the Savagan paddlers have been at Fischer last weekend. So let's circle this back around to uh, surf ski paddling. That Miller's run that you had, that amazing Miller's run, uh, I know you've spoken about it a fair bit. Um, how much did you lower the record by in that day? What was, the, what was the jump? So the record before that was
1: my brother and Oscar had done it in the double. And they had done thirty seven eighteen in a double um but the one big thing was is they had a swim which um which is don't know if they would want me to mention that but the fact that they had a swim or the fact that they had a swim and they still did such fast time so i don't know which they would choose but that's the reality um so it's 37 18 so what's that that's either 36 36 uh that's um what's the 24 32 42 seconds 42 seconds which is probably about in those conditions probably about 400 meters, three, 400 meters, yeah. Um, so it's not too big, um, but, uh, but certainly a, a
0: good enough margin. And, and how much more was it than your previous personal best?
1: Uh, okay, so it's a funny topic because, um, you know, with a Miller's Run record, it's a, it's a um, you, you have to start to watch behind the rock. You've got to be able to see the Rumbly Bay Powerboat Club and you've got to stop it on the beach. Um, and there's a the minimum distance that you have to do. Um, and so, you know, there's, um, there are those parameters that you have to adhere to. And then there's also an honor thing because no one knows exactly where the beach is. So you've got to put your foot on the sand and then stop your watch. So, but you've also got to be able to prove it. So you've got to have a garment. So I had actually done a foster time before that a couple of years ago, um, but I didn't have a garment with me. I only had a stopwatch. And so I don't talk about it that much because it's not official. Um, so up, According to me, it wasn't my fastest time, but according to the Garmin and uh, verifiable runs, that was my fastest time by about. At that time, was was quite fast. It was by by over a minute, so it was quite a jump for
0: me. Quite a, quite a major jump. Now, at when you did what boat were you paddling when you did uh, that? Let's talk about the GPS verified run. What uh, what surf key were you paddling?
1: So it's funny. I've actually done. I've actually done um, quite a couple quick runs and i've done a lot of them in different skis so back in the day i used to paddle my fin elite um not the s the the one the the model before that the fin elite um and then the but the the official record run the 36 36 i did in my v14 uh which was amazing The things just came together and um, which theoretically i wouldn't have said that Geez, you know, i'm going to do the record in that boat um but i did and I've actually done a run after that in my V12, which had a higher average speed, but because it was slightly longer, the tide is a bit higher, or maybe I covered a bit more distance. My time is about seven or eight seconds slower. So I've done a, a 36.43 in my V12, even though my average speed was uh, 0.1 higher than than the one that I did in the, um, in the V14. So... Maybe that tells you everything that you need to know. Is that You, you, need, you need a good boat, um, but specifically for the Miller's Run, I think you need the right day. And then I think the main thing is that you just need to be feeling really, really strong. So I remember that time in the V14 when I, when I broke the ring, I set the actual um, record, which stands now, is that for that whole two-week period before that, I was feeling really strong. It was like January. You know, I'd we'd raced the Cape Point just before that. I'd had a couple of weeks off, so my body was feeling good. And I was just hitting fast times for about two weeks. I was going under 38 consistently, which is, you know, which is not common at all. And then on this day, the conditions aligned. I actually did a run before that, and I forgot my watch. I just timed it on my phone, and I went like, you know, under 38, and I wasn't even really paddling that hard, and I thought, "Mm, now I've got a this is a real attempt to set up something official. So I drove home, got my Garmin, and then, you know, famously went on to to break the record, officially. (laughs) So I think, um, Ultimately, you've, you've, you've got to just be really, really strong um, and then you need to, to know your equipment to, to to adapt your approach according to what your boat can do.
0: The, um, I, want to, I want to circle back to, to equipment, but uh, before we finish up with chatting about that Miller's run, um, you know, Miller's can get really, really windy. I mean, I think uh, you've got to come, to come down to Cape Town to experience what true wind can really be like. Um, Can you say the windier, the faster as a general kind of guideline or is there a point on the millers where it's actually too windy, too messy and you're going to be faster in slightly milder conditions? Uh, Yeah, no, look, I would,
1: you've got to um, get into that question, get a bit more technical into that because a lot of people will say the windier, the faster, they'll say the bigger, they'll say, okay, when it's windier, it's bigger, which isn't always the case in the millers run. So, so. My first answer will be no. It's not always fast when it's big. But to answer your question the way you asked it, I would say yes, the windier, the faster. Um, On a miller's run. Because um, the more wind there is, the more wind chop there is. And that wind chop, the medium-sized swell, I'm talking about the swells that are about a half a meter to a meter big, are really the money makers. Those are the ones that keep your average speed up in between the big ground swells. And also use them to get onto the ground swells. So my approach would be to catch as many of those smaller wind swells as possible, use that to get onto the big ones, the, the big groundswells that are traveling at like 24, 25 Ks an hour, then milk those big groundswells for as long as I can. And then as I come off that groundswell to get straight onto the wind chop again and keep my average speed up. So for a miller's run, for record purposes, I would say a strong wind as possible and a medium sized groundswell, not a big groundswell.
0: Um, yeah, and obviously it's, it's 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 so dependent on different courses and different things as you go, and and possibly diff, your your personal style as well, if you're a, a strength paddler, a flow paddler, or what it might be. But I wanna I wanna pull back around to to equipment, and I've often used you as a as a one end of the continuum because um, you know you're not you're not ducking any under, in, under any doors when you walk through them. Unlike Matt Bowman, who uh, probably almost has to get on his knees to go through a door. So you guys kind of represent either end of the continuum in terms terms of just physical height when it comes to surf ski paddling. But for a long time, you guys have both been paddling the exact same boat, the Epic V14. And uh, I know when you first arrived on the scene and, uh, you know, let let me be fair there. When I say arrived on the scene, you started kind of, you know, winning some really big races. Um, Back in those days, you were paddling the Fen Spark, which is a really, really low volume boat. So speaking Speaking of a big boat, a big boat, big volume, maybe slightly longer versus a more nimble, uh, smaller boat. And you've been through all of them. For a guy of, of your size, what, is your, what, are your, what, what did you learn from that experience of having both access to both boats? Yes, I think I've thought a lot about
1: size of boats, volume, um, size of paddlers. And I think elite surf ski racing is suited to, to bigger guys. Especially if you look at most of the racing that, that takes place these days you know a lot of it is not always in, in ideal conditions i uh, don't have window period and they have to run a race at a certain day and it just seems to me that um the heavier guys have more of an advantage because they're able to keep the momentum longer through all the elements all the bumps and all the wind that are slowing them down certainly into the wind it helps to to have weight in your side um so that's, I've had to adapt, Yeah, you know, I've been to like, okay, well, I'm not going to get heavier. I mean, I'm, I can't get fat. If I get fat, then I won't paddle fast. So, um, I've got to kind of go with what I've got. So to be able to do that, I think I've got to be able to, to keep my stroke rate higher than other guys. So that's one thing that I actively work at is to just put my paddle into the water more often than, than the other guys. So there's a huge fitness element to that. And then there's choosing the right boat. Um, I did use the V14. Uh, I, I would say that the V14 is actually not as big as people think. Uh, I think a lot of guys who that have paddled that boat have been big guys, so the assumption is made is that the boat is a big boat, which it actually is not. It's, it's not a massive boat. I'd, I'd probably well the, the original Epic V10 is a lot bigger, and I'd even say that the Fenn Elite S is a bigger boat volume-wise. The V14 actually is not that big. Um, The main limiting factor for me with the V14 was the fact that the cockpit, the hump under your legs, was too big. So I wasn't able to leg drive efficiently. And I think that's the big benefit that I've had with the the V12 now Um, and um, a couple of years back with the Spark was that the cockpit was actually better suited to me. It was ergonomically, it helped me to get more out of my body. Um, So the Spark, actually the one that I used to race, has the same hull as the original Elite. Exactly the same hull, just got a smaller deck. Um, so um, it's a little bit easier to push through swell. You know, so I think I've really had to look at all those different elements of the boats. I haven't have had no, very little um, experience with the, with the Think, uh, with the Uno Max and the, and the normal Uno. And um, so I can't comment to my, I mean, I think I've paddled it once in boats that I haven't paddled at all of the carbonologies. And uh, it'd be very interesting for me to sort of try out the pulse and see how what, what that, uh, that boat goes. And uh, looks like the boat this doesn't have too much volume in the front, and the seat seems seems pretty far forward. So it'll be interesting to see how that reacts in big downing conditions.
0: Yeah, and certainly Haley's making it work pretty well pretty well for her. Um, speaking of boats, though. Um yeah, you know, South Africa's semi-unique. Natal, in particular, is semi-unique in in having a pretty large uh, community of S two paddlers. That's a, a double uh paddler, and uh, and Cape Town is now home to what I think is the the largest uh, S two race in the in the world, possibly. Um, certainly, it's a very big race. Um, your thoughts on the combination? If you're putting a an, an S two combination together, and and not so much at an at an elite level, but at a a mid packers level but want to be competitive do you you know what's the, the you know what kind of weight are you looking at in a, in a surf ski are you putting the heavier guy in the front the heavier guy in the back what are the what are the factors you're kind of weighing up when you're putting together a an s2 combination yes in
1: south africa we tend to race double surf skis a lot more than uh, other countries Um, other the only other place they race are you know in, in australia they race but that's only life-saving they don't they hardly do any uh, open ocean paddling doubles. so we I'd say we, in terms of, of figuring out what works um, and with awesome races like we have like the Freedom Paddle um, on Freedom Day in April, um, it's really important for us to, to work out the technical aspects of d- doubles paddling. Now, for me, I've always believed and still do that in a double surf, it's better to have the big guy in front. And they really are big boats. And I find that having the heavier guy in front with that added volume, and helps keep the trim of the boat um more efficient and i think if you can add to that a lighter guy in the back that's able to pull more than his body weight it really adds a lot it often helps to flip it around and and what you don't want is you don't want a big heavy guy in the back that can't pull his weight so that's what you want to try and avoid so if you can get the nose of the double down and have a partner that um, is able to add to the guy in the front i think that's really what you're after in a doubles crew.
0: And driving a doubles downwind in comparison to driving a a single downwind, I would imagine the overlying principles are exactly the same. Um, But do you change your mindset and your approach? And if so, how for a double versus a single? Mm,
1: Yeah. Principles the same, but very different approach. Very different. Singles are able to chop and change direction a lot more. Also, remember the paddler, you... Your brain knows what moves you're going to make, so you anticipate that move, whereas in a double, the back paddler doesn't always know what the front guy is going to do, which may put the boat off balance or rock the boat, you know, metaphorically, but also literally, <laughs> rock the boat when, if that guy changes direction. So, which leads me to a key ingredient of doubles cruise is that the guys need to understand each other, and if the back guy is able to see the front guy's move or his turn before he does it, uh, that really makes it a very successful boat. So in terms of driving the boat, I think the the um the driver needs to be be very calculated. Uh, he needs to to be very sure of his moves. He can't chop and change at the last minute. And what that means with down end padding is that you draw a lot longer, cleaner lines. So if you had to look specifically at catching a ground in a double, because you've got more speed, more momentum, you tend to stay on those big ground swells for a lot longer. So your your moments between changing direction you'll do S turns in a double and what you do in a single where you may be able to go from run to and prepare calculated uh, draw longer lines and the back guy needs to be able to understand what, his, what the driver is going to do and
0: so, uh, Jasper, uh, it's something that's just arrived on the uh, on the South African scene uh, is the S3. So, Carbonology is put together in S3, and and they were speaking about fish earlier, and I think they had 60 or 70 K3s at fish this year. And uh, at the Freedom Paddle this year, there were four S3s. So, um, what could be seen as a bit of a novelty, perhaps? Do you see the S3 catching on like the K3 has? Yeah, I don't see why not. Um... I think crew paddling is lots
1: of fun um, so if you look at the you know k3 paddling, people seem to love it so i can't think of any reason why um, why s3 paddling won't, won't become bigger if anything it's harder driving and uh, managing a k3 in the river it's a big boat with some tight turns and the back guys can definitely get some scratches if they get dragged through some bushes um so yeah, it's quite a hard job driving a k3 and you know on the sea there's a lot more space so I really can't think of any reason why the S3s won't, um, won't become very popular. I've, I haven't paddled one. Um, unfortunately, I'd like to give it a try at some stage. But, uh, yeah, I, I think it's going to go very well.
0: Yeah, if anyone's listening is interested in, in, in uh, the S3s, check out Carbonology. As far as I know, they're the only brand that's doing it. And they, are, they are beautiful boats. Uh, so it may be worth getting one into your local club and a uh, great way of introducing new people into the sport. But uh, Jasper, I bumped into you... I think it was the beginning of this last summer season at Fishhook. And uh, we were at a race and, and you were standing on the beach. I think I was organizing the race and you were standing next to me. And I remember asking you, why aren't you racing? And you said to me, listen, you know, I'm a, fa- I'm a family man now. I've got kids, my racing career is kind of winding down. So i asked ask you the same question again. Is that the case? You've just won fish. You were at the uh, World Champs a couple of weeks ago. What's happening in your life right now, paddling wise and professionally?
1: Yeah, I, that, was, uh, that was a tricky time for me. I remember that seeing you on the beach there. Um, and um, I just reached a point at the end of last year where I'd done a couple races, and, and really I shouldn't have been there. And they're just, just, just not great trips for me because uh, yeah, I had to travel far, I was burnt out. Um, it just wasn't physically really in shape to, to give a good race. And then obviously you get a bad result. It just, just adds insult to injury. So, what I realized was, you know, I didn't really want to do that anymore. I didn't want to go to events where I was burdened, um, I was burnt out, and I really wasn't giving myself the best chance. So, that, that's where I was coming from. Um, you know, I committed to, to a career as a semi professional paddler. So, um, any decision to move away from that meant that I had to pick it up somewhere else to, to keep making a life, to keep earning some money. And I'd been invested in the paddling world for a while. So I just made a conscious decision just to ease up on the racing side of things and not be quite as regimented in my training, just go back to, you know, kind of going with my own feelings, seeing how, you know, what I feel like on a daily basis. And if I didn't feel like doing a certain session or not even paddling, then it wasn't going to be a problem, you know, which it may have been in the past and I was pursuing it more actively. So I decided to start up a little brand, which I've done now, um, Paddle Africa, um, Iconic Adventures, which really sums up what I want to do with that. Um, is to really take people on, on iconic adventures and um, <coughs> unique paddling experiences. Um, and that's going to be happening throughout Southern Africa. And um, We've got a couple adventures lined up. You can go and check the website, paddleafrica.ca.za. So we'll be expanding on that. And then with that, I'm going to be offering um, race packages um, to iconic events, uh, mainly in South Africa, first up. So events like the Freedom Paddle and the Cape One Challenge. And then I've always picked, also picked up on, my, on the coaching side of things. So just individualized coaching here at home in Fishhook. And then also obviously our online videos. And it's been, a, it's been a really cool year just as I've been pursuing that because I've been able to just take the foot off the gas. And like I said, not be quite as pressured for events. Um, but you know, ironically, as it goes, I've been able to just um, string some good weeks of training together here and there and just really find the enjoyment factor. And then I you know, went to World Champs, had a good race, and then had a good race at the fish, so I've really been enjoying it. And I think the last couple of weeks I've realized um, how burdensome racing had become to me um, you know, for the three or four years before that, when uh, really for a lot of the time it felt like a bit of a prizefighter, you know, um, and um, seeing I'm sort of coming out at the other, under, other end of that now and really just enjoying it and seeing it for what it is.
0: So so Bruce Seth from Durban's got a, a couple of questions and one of his questions kind of runs to that. He's got there, you know, he's got a question about your attitude and how much of a factor that is in winning a race. And it seems like, you know, that's what you're talking about right now. You know, you're obviously very, very hungry. And then, you know, as a prize fighter, you are being trotted out and expected to win races. And now it kind of sounds like you've looped back and you're kind of racing without pressure and racing for fun and, and maybe there's some results coming. So how much of a role does your, does your attitude play in, in winning a race? And how much of it is it a, a deciding factor between the elite guys who are all probably of a physical and talented um, uh, on, on the same level, equals with one another?
1: Oh, yeah, I've, I've given so much thought to, to mental preparation and mental attitude and strategies and things you know, and what it takes to do well. And I think it, it's just, there are so many answers. There's no one answer that's gonna answer those questions. Um, I'll, I'll just leave you with a couple of points which, uh, which I've come up with. The first thing is, is that the attitude that you need to win at times is, is, is you definitely need a desperation. And, and sometimes having an imbalance in your attitude or your personality is actually very beneficial to doing well in sport and doing well in an event but it definitely is not beneficial to you in life. So it is possible for you to be a very unhealthy, imbalanced person, but still, be, still achieve well in a certain race. However, um, how long that's going to last is, is probably, probably not going to last very long, but at times it is very beneficial. Um, yeah, And that's what I've noticed, is that, is that that can help, but in life and, and being a person and just being balanced, you know, I think you need to sort of try and harness the, the determination and the hunger and the drive that you have to, to do well. Um, and then you need to weave that in into how am I going to weave that into my life and still, and still live a light, enjoyable life, get on with people. Because ultimately, you know, the people that, pe- the people that you're racing, let's be honest, are obstacles to where you want to go. But, you know, as soon as you get to the beach and in 10 years' time when <clears throat> we've all moved on and it doesn't really matter, you need to actually live life with people and get on, you know. So... The trick is, and this is very special about the paddling community, is so far, mostly between the guys and the girls, everyone seems to be able to, to race hard, and, and certainly there are incidents here and there in the industry, but generally people seem to leave that behind them and get on, which is not something that you'll find in many sports. Um, and I don't know what, what the sport's going to look like in 10 years from now, but for now, as a, as a community, we seem to, doing it, seem to be doing okay with that. You know, um, Yeah, I think... I mean, I hope that answers the question. Kind of lead me on a few more, then I can give a bit more of that because I certainly have lots of thoughts of that over the years.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I think a lot of guys have got questions about, you know, how do you train? I mean, Bruce goes on to ask about, you know, do you train harder and, and on training days versus training day at first, you know, versus race day. And, uh, you mm. know, do you ever find that special gear that you didn't know you had on a, on a, on a race day, but uh, I, you know, maybe yeah. we've got to get you back for a, for a podcast where we can literally talk about race strategy and race and race, uh, race preparation. Um, and I'm, I have, or well, maybe I can ask you this question. I'm not convinced as, as someone who is in the sports medicine game I'm not convinced that what the pros do and what the pros are able to do translates particularly well for us average Joes because we're working with a different tool set. Is that a fair comment or do you think there is some similarities between the average Joe Mm. and and the pro guys when it comes to performance at relative levels?
1: Oh, I mean, there's so much that goes into it. But let me just quickly get back to Bruce's question about training and enjoyment and that thing. What I've realized now is that you've got to find enjoyment in your training. And I'll tell you one key factor for that. And, and I'm talking about people that are racing at an elite level that really need to go into the hurt zone to try and win a race. Because to win a race, these days in any sport, you, you almost need to, I mean, like Sean uh, Rice always says, I, I chewed half a lung to win that race, which is such a good analogy. Now that's almost what you need to do. So now to be able to get that self, to get that out of you, which is pain, you need to get your body to that pain. Now in training, and this is why downland paddling is great, is that you can get yourself into that hurt zone, but you can still enjoy it. You're still surfing, you're still having a good time, which gives your brain positive reinforcements about that area that you're about to go into. And I think the more you're able to stay positive as you go into that hurt zone, give yourself good feedback, be kind to yourself, the more that's gonna help you in the long run to revisit that pace over and over and over again. So that's my quick thought about that, which you could probably get into a lot more. Um, then the next question was, um, oh, yes, what you're saying is what the elite guys do versus versus the rest. Look, the, the key difference is, is that most elite guys have just been paddling and putting in the miles for a lot longer than most of the other people have. So if you look like, I mean, if you look at someone like Hank, you know, I don't think anyone's done more paddling miles than he That He basically almost paddled across the Atlantic as a teenager and since then just you know, has basically been training for... So almost three decades so you know no one is really going to catch up to that sort of mileage then for guys like myself and my brother we've been training almost semi-professionally since we were 12 or 13 years old and people say i'm a surfski paddler but i started paddling guppies when i was 12 you know training consistently so there's a lot of history and a lot of mileage in the bank that the elite guys are able to just pick up uh, pick up where they left off and kind of do little top ups and little tuning exercises which obviously most the people don't have so I think for most guys, they need to go through a phase of, of really putting in some mileage and building up a good base or a good foundation. And then, you know, they might, may find it helpful to get some people, some, some experts or coaches or guys like us in their local areas to just help them with those top-ups, you know, some tweaking, and some te- technique advice, some boat choice, and then also some very specific training sessions, which they maybe do one or two really very hard training or very specific training sessions per week. That's, that's really talking on a, on a, you know, if you're looking at a high-level overview, that's how I would say is really the way for guys to go ahead and improve their paddling.
0: If someone wants to have you coaching them and guiding them when in whatever format, how do they get in touch? So you can contact me um, through my email, yasper at paddleafrica.steo.za
1: or just send me a WhatsApp or give me a call on uh, 082 seven four six eight oh five seven and the individualized lesson lessons the sessions that i do I, i'll do here in fishhook in cape town um but then i'm also doing uh, training programs and then getting in touch with guys when we can meet face to face so so if guys do want some coaching just get in touch and we can work out a customized option
0: excellent um jasper you've you say you you, know, you took your foot off racing but you're back racing again um this transition phase and 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 you know slightly less intensity although the results seem to be there has this um have have you had sponsors that have kind of supported you back when you were you know winning every race under the sun are they still with you right now and what role are they playing for you in this transition where you kind of what seems to be adopting a a more pick and choose approach to your paddling and getting the results and also lining up a commercial life for yourself uh, outside of winning races yeah i mean i've i've been extremely fortunate with uh, with sponsors and
1: I've managed to just um, establish some real strong relationships over a couple of years with, um, with Eurosteel, with my brother, Mokka Paddling, and then also with Epic Kayaks. Um, and those guys, have, you know, looking back now, have been my sponsors for about five years now consistently. Um, so we've really come to an understanding of, um, of what each party requires just to make the relationship work. And we've had to tweak that at times. Um, but yeah, certainly I think those guys are on board with, with where I'm going now and um, you know getting a result here and there certainly helps to just keep everyone happy including myself so for now for the time being um, i'll just stick up with those guys and it's definitely working i think you know all those sponsors in their different areas have have added a huge amount to paddling um, you know obviously they've had the had the, uh, the pr and, and getting the exposure but i think for all of them uh, mocker Eurosteel and epic it's about being involved with people and being involved with the community and just generally making life better for people um, which i'm very grateful for
0: so if we've got a young junior listening right now and then um, you know they're looking to step it up and kind of emulate some of the results you've had and they're shopping for a sponsor they want to get noticed and get picked up any advice for them on on kind of how to attract a sponsor and what they should be doing you know in order to re- give a re- give a return to a sponsor because obviously our sponsor it's not charity they're, they're looking for a return mm. on this how would you guide those guys
1: i'd say first you know be humble um do your do your work and 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 make sure that you can add value. So so do your training, get some results, and and really have something that you can add to people. Um, what you'll find with these sponsors, specifically in paddling, is that almost all of them are relationally based. So what you'll find is that um, if it's a junior paddler and he's gotten some good results, maybe the guy's won an SA title and he wants to go overseas. What you'll probably find is that there's a friend of your dad or your mom and they've got a corporate company and they believe in you as an individual. They like what you represent, not just while you're paddling, but as a person. And that's really what people are interested in is they want to get their brands involved with, with what you represent in life. And the fact that you are pretty good at sport um, adds to that as well. Um, so I would say is get some results, find someone that knows you individually and believes in what you stand for, your, your, your values and your morals, and ask them if they'd like to support you in life um and with that you know specifically you say what i need is i need a ticket to this race or that race maybe you can pay for my entry or my hotel and start small add value to the guys in that way and then nurture that relationship and grow it as you go on through life i, th-
0: I think one of the most important things you said there is uh, is adding value um you know give give back you know take you know ex- accept graciously the uh, you know the offer to pay for a plane ticket or an entrance but uh you know give 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 back and and, and show appreciation to what your sponsors are, are are doing for you um not not uh not that anyone's uh sponsored me but i would imagine that would be the uh the approach that one should be taking um looping around i don't think many people are aware of this but jasper is actually a fully qualified physiotherapist um jasper did you ever practice as a physio
1: yeah i did i, I qualified
0: in 2007 and i worked for
1: about uh Six or seven years, um, seven, eight years as a physio, including my, my first year for the government. And then I worked at a couple of practices around Cape Town at the Sports Science and the UCT Sports Injuries Clinic. Um, and then um, went on to do some of my own work. But really, as I was about to get going, the uh, paddling career also took off, and I just found it really hard to, to um, generate momentum with that. Um, and at the time, just gave it up to pursue the paddling career. Um, you know, In saying that I never stopped being a physio, I certainly still use it every day. Um, and, um, and chat to people about that, about injuries and, and preparation and, and how that helps paddling all the time. Um, but for the time being, um, I've parked that idea and we'll, we'll see, maybe in, a, in another phase of life. But for now, I'm uh, happy to carry on with this.
0: Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Has it has it impacted you in terms of managing your own injuries? You know, there's a saying that it's the plumber's house has got the leaky taps. Um, what is your approach to injuries at uh, being a physio and and at the same time, what... You know what, injury, what? How have injuries affected you? And what you know, there been any in particular mm. that have held you back? And you know, just generally, mm. how do you manage that training load, yeah. injuries, treatment, recovery, and so on?
1: Yeah, well, I would classify injuries just high level in two categories: traumatic, you know, incidental injuries, and then and overuse, or you know, war, type of injury that comes from being worn out. Um, so so the traumatic or the incidental injuries, like you know, falling or whatever that you get in in, in, uh, in cycling or something like that. Obviously, not much you can do about those. They happen, and, and there's a very, very specific uh, treatment and rehab protocol for those, which basically is this time. You know, the, the approach is pretty standard, and it's this time and, and going through the steps. The tricky ones are the overuse and the, and the ones where you wear yourself out, um, and especially in a case where you where you actually overtrain, as in your, your system as a whole is depleted, the and then your, your body starts showing up, which is, um, which is probably more common in paddling. You know, we don't have too many... Traumatic injuries. So my first step is to not get injured, you know. So and that certainly has helped me a lot in uh, in my preparation, is that I've been able to just uh, maintain a, a good, healthy balance of um, of exercise and, and, and prehab, like they call it, to to not get injured in the first place. And overall, I would say that is to look after your body, so recover properly after some hard sessions, um, and then flexibility, flexibility. So. And um, You've got to do whatever stretching works for you, but definitely in paddling specific, I'd say the big areas for me is keeping your hip fl- your flexors um, and your quads and your hamstrings nice and flexible. Um, because what I find pretty common is when paddlers start wanting to run. So this is what's happened to me is that I've been pretty fit from paddling, so you know, my heart and lungs, but really my legs are not conditioned to run at all. And so when I've tried to kick up my running for something like a doozy, it doesn't take me long to pick up like a tendonitis or an ITB, and that's just because I haven't, been, haven't stayed flexible around my, my hips and knees. So, so watch your flexibility. Uh, and then the one area, Robin, which, which you'll know about as well is my forearms, which is probably not more of an overuse injury, more just because of my body type. Um, and I used to get a lot of forearm pump um, and really tried to work on that for a long time. i um, tried everything under the sun, but ultimately I had to go under the knife and they had to just release that forearm compartment, which has been extremely successful, um, as you know. Um, so sometimes you know you've just got to go for that that medical intervention to sort something out.
0: Yeah, I can I can second that. I I, I suffer from a similar a similar ailment to that forearm pump, and actually after a phone call with Jasper, I went and had the surgery after also many years of chasing it down. So and I know it's it's a relatively common thing out there. So if you if you're listening to this uh, to this podcast and you you suffer from chronic forearm pump and you have been doing the rehab and and checking your equipment and you're at your, your wits end. Uh, just from personal experience uh, myself and also looking at Jasper, the surgery is really minimal and it's been game-changing for me. And, and I think, uh, uh, Jasper, I mean, it, it, how severe was it for you? If you hadn't fixed it, do you think you would have achieved what you've achieved?
1: Oh, no. You know, I think in certain, I mean, in certain, you like to think that, you know, you still sort of be a good paddler and uh, maybe sort of here and there I probably would have gotten some results, maybe the longer ones, you know, the less intense ones. But certainly for the intense events, you know, like something like marathon paddling, that sort of thing, where they're really intense moments, I don't think so. It's, it's been a complete game changer. I mean, you know, when my forearms used to blow up, my, they used to get so hard and so debilitating, I could, I could hardly hold the paddle, you know. It just used to take me 20, 30 minutes to, to regain any strength in my, in my grip, which is crucial for paddling. Whereas now, I mean, even if, they start, if the pressure starts pulling up in my forearm a little bit, you know, a couple easy strokes, maybe easy for 30 seconds, and I can get going again. Like, the key thing is, also when I'm training, you know, if, if, if the pressure builds up a little bit in between intervals, 30 seconds, one minute rest is enough to recover and, and give the next one a proper go. So, um, no, for me, it's been a complete game changer.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's that's a, that's a terrible condition. I'm glad we've got a solution. Um, Jasper, a question on, on you spoke about long, long races and shorter races. Now, looking from the outside and, and not not having all the facts at hand, so forgive me if my assumption is completely out of line, but it appears from the outside that the longer races, the Molokais, the k Point Challenges haven't suited you or your results in those events, haven't been as much as the kind of sub, sub 30k, kind of 25k, more traditional um, series uh, distances. Would you say you're more suited to the one or the other or has it just been that those longer races just haven't been your day?
1: No, yeah, I, you know, I would say that I'm suited to the 10 to 20k high intensity uh, races. So, I mean, if I, if I had to look at, if you had to compare it to running, I'd say that my speciality would be that half marathon distance. So that hour, the 45 minutes to an hour and a half, even as short as half an hour, that seems to be my, my, uh, my the you know the intensity and the and the length that I've operated best in. Um, however, I am very keen to uh, up my game and. Um, and just as I maybe, maybe it comes with a bit of age, maybe it will for me, is just start, start doing better in the longer races. And, um, you know, I think it's also helpful to reflect that it's just been an impossible era to, to do really, really well at um, long distance races because we have had some freaks around <laughs> who are just distance animals. Um, so it's also been a difficult era to, to do well in that, you know. Um, but yeah, I think for me, I've, I've enjoyed those short, intense races, but. Um, Definitely keen to uh, to um, add some distance and and maybe win a Cape Point or a Challenge or something like that in the years to come.
0: Might we see you, when you say Challenge, are you talking about the PE to East London next year? Might we see you on the start line for that Mammoth event?
1: Well, well yeah. I mean, I don't want to put myself out there officially, but um, I spoke to a friend of mine, uh, Richard from Voldemans from PE, so I hope he's listening, and I said to Chopper, he was... Um, hasn't been paddling too much lately i said to him if he does the Cape point this year then i'll do the challenge next year so let's see if chopper rocks up for the Cape point
0: <laughs> oh, fantastic so let's wrap this up we've been going for a while where where's your head at now from a paddling perspective say for the next uh, for the next two years um have you got some races in mind and uh are you going to be racing them hard or are you going to be kind of just uh, if if you go well and you get a result great if not you're not too worried what's what's what can we expect from jasper mocker in the coming coming year or so
1: yeah, I think um, I'm. I'm certainly not. I'm not at all um, driven to to race and achieve in, in, in that sense. I mean, I'm very content with with the racing career that I've had. And anything that I do now is is a bonus and, and purely for, for enjoyment. So, uh, in saying that, if I line up, i still want and have a good result. So you know, that'll be my approach to that. Um, I'm I'm living Fishhook. I've I've done pretty much every Cape Point since 2003. So I will do the Cape Point this year, and um, I'll make sure I'm as as well prepared as i can be so that's the next step with that other than that i'm just going to focus on paddle africa and um, build some really cool adventures some cool race packages and um, and continue coaching people just to uh, pursue that career a little bit better
0: jasper thanks so much it's been a fascinating chat i think we've kind of really got to know how your brain works when we come when it comes to the world of paddling uh, which I find incredibly exciting. Thanks so much for spending some time with us, guys. Uh, you know, Jasper's given us uh, given his details. So if you want to reach out to him with some, some more questions, I'm sure he's willing to answer. And uh, a reminder that you know he's running a coaching program as well on different levels. So if you you know if you're looking for some some more structured training, Jasper's the guy to talk to. And uh, if you want to go and come and pedal in Africa, um, you know, pedal Africa. Um, I'm working a little bit with Jasper on the pedal Africa. My um in, in you know within that space. Uh, so definitely check. It out. He's got some really cool, different adventure style um, packages that he's lining up. And uh, Africa is uh, an amazing place to come and paddle. So if you're looking to kind of break away from your local waters and try something new, uh, check out paddleafrica.co.za. Jasper, you've been a legend, mate. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll catch you on the water. And um, yeah, best of luck with the future. Best of luck with Paddle Africa. And uh, I know we joked uh, last week about uh, potentially on this podcast, we'd be talking about your fish. Title and you sound sort of said, nah, I'm top five at best. So uh, you know, maybe, uh, maybe we'll be uh, in the same fashion. You'll have a gold medal for, uh, or a winner's medal for K Point Challenge this year. Uh, so <laughs> let's see, let's see where that ends up. I, I gave you good luck last time. Anyway, I'm trying to do it again for you. So uh, best of luck, mate. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot, Rob. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, everyone for listening. Cool. That's it, guys. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Tune in next time for all things paddling with SASurfSki.com.